Well, good morning, friends. Great to be here with you this morning. If uh, we've not met before, my name is Mike. I'm the uh, pastor here at Salt Church. It's great that you're here with us this morning. We are at the end of our sermon series on the Psalms for summer. Uh, we're at Psalm 147, which is the passage that was just read for us by Jenna. If you've got your Bible there, can I ask you to open it again? If you closed it to Psalm 147, otherwise you can find it on your phone or some device that you might have. So we're at Psalm 147 this morning. Uh, as uh, has become something that we do now before we start our sermon is just take a moment, a minute, just to be silent, relatively quiet before God to bring the thoughts of our week and the things that have been going on for us to God so that we might hear him speak. So we're just going to take a minute really of just being silent before God and then I'm going to lead us in prayer and we'll dive into Psalm 147. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now to praise you. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for us. And as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. So we come now to hear you speak. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word, that we'd see you again in a clearer light, that our lives might once more be surrendered to you as our Lord and King. And we ask that you'd help me to speak in a way that's faithful and clear, that enables this to happen. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, recently, some friends of mine went on a trip of a lifetime through Europe, England, Scotland, Italy, Germany, France, Belgium, Switzerland, the Czech Republic. They went to some amazing places and saw some incredible things. But I didn't know they were going away. I just knew that they went. And I know that they went... Because for the best part of two months, my Facebook feed was saturated with all of their holiday photos. So many photos. I didn't have to ask them about the trip because I got to see it all anyway. But that's what it's like with enthusiastic travellers, isn't it? They want to share with you the photos with your, of their experiences, the places that they've been, the things that they saw, the food that they ate. Whether you want to see those photos or not, you get to see them anyway. And while your friends are off somewhere chilling out in the Swiss Alps, having the absolute time of their life, you're reminded that you're still at home slugging and sweating it out during the summer. But again, that's what it's like with enthusiastic tourists, isn't it? There's always photos to see, so many photos. We're in our Summer Psalms uh, Bible teaching series called Summer Psalms, largely because I'm still in denial that another year has started and it's already February. But I wanted to give our church family a handle on the structure of the book of Psalms as a whole so that you could actually start reading the Psalms as a book for yourself rather than just seeing these as random bits of interesting poetry. So far, we've looked at the two introductory Psalms at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 introduced us to the book's purpose. Psalm 2 to the book's plot. Psalm 1 traced the pathway through life. Psalm 2 described the pathway that this takes us on. Psalm 2 introduces us to the theme of the Psalms, the universal reign of the Lord and his King. The first half of the Psalms are laments. Laments are for dark times, life's sudden crises and constant sorrows. And the second half of the book of Psalms are mostly songs of thanksgiving and praise. Thanksgiving is for times of transition, which is the journey from darkness into light. We're thankful for that. The movement from sorrow to joy. Praise is for the bright times, the moments of joy in life, the long seasons of blessing. 
Alongside this movement within the Psalms from lament to thanksgiving to praise is the movement of Israel's history from David until the return of the exiles. And so book 1 and 2, Psalms 1 to 72, are all about the life and times of King David. Psalm 3, Psalms 73 to 89, are about Israel's divided kingdom, a period of 350 years between Solomon and the exile. Book 3 of the Psalms is the low point of the collection. All but five of these Psalms are laments over the failure of Israel's kingdom. Book 4, Psalms 90 to 106, are reflections on the 70-year period of the exile. Book 4 closes with a prayer for salvation. Book 5, Psalms 107 to 145, open with that prayer now being answered. Psalms 146 to 150 are what's called the Hallelujah Psalms. Hallelujah because we're at the end of the Psalms perhaps. (laughs) The Hebrew word for Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And the book finishes with five Psalms of praise. These final Psalms in the book of Psalms all begin and end with the word Hallelujah or praise the Lord. If we follow the king's pathway through life, a journey of lament and thanksgiving and praise... Our ultimate destination is praise, hallelujah. Hall- a praise that extends from us, to all, from all of us, and then from all of creation to God. Psalms 147, though, is a little bit like a photo album. The psalmist invites us to look at his photos. They're a collection of his favourite things that he's understood about God on his journey. And the photo album begins for us in verses 1 to 6 with a reminder of what we already know to be true. See with me, won't you? Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Psalm 147 is framed by three commandments for us to praise and each begins a new page of the photo album. Verses Verses 1, 7 and 12 alternate between praise of the Redeemer and praise of our Creator. You see, Psalm 147 is sheer jubilation from start to finish. There's no narrative tension to resolve here like there is in some other parts of the Bible. Psalm 147 is just pure praise. In verse 1, sing praise refers to harp music. And while the harp really doesn't do it for me, music has the power to stir our deepest emotions. Music makes us feel alive to the life that is around us. It is right that music is used in order to praise God. Why do you think he created it in the first place? When we sing together in church, we are aligning our hearts with God and with each other. Singing praise stirs up our love for God. It awakens our desire to love and please him by serving other people. And so now that we're all on the same page, friends, now that we're all singing from the same hymn book, here's the first photo, verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The fitting song of praise in verse 1 isn't because God brought Israel back from exile. It's a fitting song of praise because God is the sort of God that would do that. Do you want to know what God's like? Pay close attention to this photo. You see, praise is the ability to focus on the details. It draws the attention of others to 
certain aspects that we wouldn't normally see. See what kind of city now God builds. Look how he takes a bunch of rejected stones. And notice how he shapes outcasts into his earthly dwelling. Now take note of the people that he's chosen. Can you see them there in verse 2? They're the wounded and the brokenhearted. God takes the wounded and the broken and he reforms and he renews them in order to be his. God takes fragmented and discombobulated lives. God chooses bleeding and busted people and he takes them and he makes them whole. And see it there, he makes his home amongst us. They say that a picture tells a thousand words. So here there's obviously a story to the picture. But the real focus here, friends, isn't the story. It's the subject of this portrait. Psalm 147 asks us, do you want to know what God's like? Here, look, see, notice. Our God is just like this. Here's the second photo, verse 4. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. God, great is our Lord, in abundant, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Counting all the stars of the night sky was the impossible problem, impossible problem that God gave to Abraham. Look up and count the stars, Abraham, if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. But God not only counts the stars in the sky, friends, he names each and every one of them. Nothing is impossible for God. And when you name something, you make it yours. And so all the stars are God's because, well, he made them and he named them. When the world looks up at the stars at night, it either admires, studies or consults them. But when we look at, at the sparkling night sky, we should see something radically different to them. Israel saw it. And that is the sheer size and the sovereignty of God. God is simply beyond all measure and comprehension. But now look closer at this photo. The psalmist wants us to notice something amazing. The Hebrew word for number there in verse 4, can you see that? Is also the same word for measure. In verse 5, you and I, we're easily impressed by size and power, aren't we? Because it's something that we can tangibly see and feel, experience. But what should really knock our socks off is the power and size of what is simply beyond us. God not only put the stars into place, he also names and sustains each and every one of them. That's who God is. But let's put these two photos side by side for a moment. What is it that you're noticing now? The almighty creator and the sustainer of everything, the owner and controller of all that we cannot comprehend is also the same forgiving redeemer who heals our broken hearts and our busted lives. That's who God is. And we can see this in the third photo. Look there, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. I want you to try and get your head around this for a minute, will you? The practical application 
of God's transcendent wisdom and knowledge is to help the humble. The rescue of the lost is the fulfillment of the universe. Redemption is the completion of creation. The creator chooses to redeem exiles. God builds his church with broken people. Welcome. Bringing life to those who are dead in their sins is the wisest and most powerful thing that God's ever done. Praise the Lord. And as we turn to the second page of this photo album, we're invited once again to make music to God there in verse 7. But these next photos are comparative rather than contrastive. And this next photo, our first one in the second page, is panoramic. Look there, verse 8. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the, on the hills. Without any tension or conflict at all, the imagery now moves down to earth from the heavens. The name of all the stars feels closer to home in this picture for us. The God who determined human history also turns hills green with timely seasonal rain. It's God who puts food on our table, but the next picture isn't one of people eating together. Look there with me, verse 9. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. All of us like to think that we're pretty special, some of us more than others, and we are special, made in the image of God. But God does not feed us because we're special. God feeds us because of who he is. The creator provides for all of his creation. The generous provider delights in making things flourish. But what is absolutely baffling here to me is that God even feeds the birds. Those ugly scavenger types like seagulls and bin chickens. Ravens are not only unclean in the Old Testament, they are unloved. But in this photo, the raven's chicks cry out. It's the same word that's used for prayer. And while their parents are off feeding and fending for themselves somewhere, probably out of your garbage bin, God, their loving parent, feeds these little ones when they cry to him. The imagery of the feathered creatures diving in and out of your dumpster isn't that great, but it's a lovely picture here, apart from that, of God's mercy and provision. God hears the cries of the least of his little ones. And when you put these two pictures together, it reveals that God is powerful, competent, and he's generous and kind. See the last photo on this page, won't you? Verse 10. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor, in the pleasure, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope is in his steadfast love. God is delighted and pleased. It gets a big grin on his face whenever it happens. God doesn't delight in the same things that we do, like hitting your personal best in a weightlifting comp. He delights in the strength of horses. He doesn't delight in the horses, strength of horses and men. It doesn't really float my boat either. Maybe it does something for you. But these legs aren't just the legs of any man. 
They're the strong and fast legs of a warrior. And the imagery here, friends, is of the battlefield or the arena. Ripped muscles, bulging biceps, pulsating pecs, thunder thighs, curved calves, not knobbly knees. And we, del- and we delight and we take pleasure from our sporting heroes, don't we? Their strength and their agility and their endurance, they impress us. But God delights and values different things to us. He's not impressed with strength, with the strength of his creatures. Why would strength and endurance impress the creator whose everlasting power is without any limits? So what does God delight in? Well, let's take a closer look. God takes pleasure and delight. Can you see that? When weak things put their trust in him. Puts a smile on his fatherly face. He gets a kick out of it. When we recognise our own weakness and our unattractiveness like the helpless and hopeless ravens, when we realise that God is all-powerful and awesome and we cry out to him in order to provide for us, God hears us cry to him in our weakness and he is filled with delight and pleasure in answering our prayers. Praise the Lord. So here's what we've seen so far. The Lord is the creator who redeems his broken people. Redemption completes creation. The Lord is the generous sustainer who supplies the needs of all who now depend upon him. But as we turn to this final page in the album, it's here that we see the left hand of God at work. And once again, we're invited to praise. This time, all of God's people are called to praise. Here's why, verse 13. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. The rest of Psalm 147 admires God's attributes. But verse 13 is admiring God's achievements. And the language here is that of reconstruction. God is rebuilding his fallen city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place of his promised dwelling. God dwells amongst the broken that he has redeemed. God not only repairs our busted lives, he provides peace for us in order to prosper in. Peace isn't simply the absence of trouble, friends. The word shalom is the restoration of all that is now broken. Shalom means everything as it should be. And here is the picture of shalom. God rebuilding his people. God rebuilding his place. Peace, reconstruction, renewal, rejuvenation, rebuilding, restoring, shalom. Along with the provision of his abundant generosity are all good rains, all good crops and all good governance. The first photo that we saw in Psalm 147 was of the broken-hearted exiles. But now the photo before us is of a redeemed people in a restored and safe place. It is the complete picture of Jerusalem. But the psalmist doesn't put these next photos on another page in his photo album. 
Instead, he leaves just enough space for them, for us, under the photo that he's got of Jerusalem, and he just sticks these last two there. These final photos of create, are of creation, are snapshots of God's mystery and wonder behind the scenes and amongst the details of life is where we see God's left hand at work. Won't you see it with me in verse 15? He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He turns down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his coal? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. And immediately you and I, because of who we are, we're drawn to the imagery here of the weather, aren't we? Which in itself is rather confusing given context. Crystals of ice and snow aren't all that common in Israel. Frost isn't even a surname in the Middle East. None of these conditions are useful for sustaining life. But on closer inspection, snow and ice are used as a metaphor alongside God's word. Like a strong weather warning, this psalm alerts us to the mysteries of God's word. The command of God's word in verse 15 comes down from the heavens and it does its work amongst the earth. God gives snow and it scatters it everywhere, but it's his word that spreads and covers the earth. Here's what is mysterious. By his word, God is present with us, but his word can also undo what it's already done. That's the second mysterious thing that it does, verse 18. It melts the snow that God has already scattered. When we see these two mysteries together and we place them under the picture of Jerusalem, the psalmist wants us to apply these two mysteries to God's people and the city of Jerusalem. God draws near to his city and he tears it down. God draws near again and he builds it up. Babylon tore it down. Nehemiah built it up. Israel's sins tore it down. Israel's prayers built it up. But the ultimate cause as to why that happened is hidden from us. It's a mystery. Why would God choose to create a history for his universe where he tears down his own city in order to build it up again? It's the mystery that Psalm 147 marvels and wonders at, scratching its head at the strange and magnificent ways of God. But this final photo now brings this mystery down to the lives of the people who live in the city of Jerusalem. The word God speaks to freeze and to thaw out for the world is the very same word that God speaks to his people. And when Israel hears the word of God, it's not in the form of snow and ice, but in the form of the law of Moses, verse 19. He declared his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. You might remember from Psalm 1 that the path of the blessed is to meditate on the law day and night. It's no different for us as Christ's followers. God gives us his word for us to live by, to feed off, 
to grow in. The point of praise isn't the ignorance of the nations as if that is something for us to somehow rejoice in, but that God's people are uniquely blessed because we have his word. And that's worth singing about. Before we close up the album of Psalm 147, these photos reveal to us the path of obedience. But it is the path, but the path of obedience that leads to blessing is both mysterious and winding. Praise the Lord. With no narrative tension here for us to resolve, the only remaining tension here now lies within each and every one of us. Which path are you travelling on? The path of obedience that leads to blessing is the road that follows after Christ. We are, after all, Christ followers who by his obedient act on the cross for us provides healing to the wounded and restoration for the brokenhearted. And so the Psalms, as a book, friends, are an invitation to discipleship to apprentice our lives to the very life of Jesus because only Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. He is the word of God now present among us. But following him means taking a pathway through life that involves many twists and turns and times of great mystery. The journey towards a destination that ends in praise leads, through, leads us through both lament and thanksgiving. It is a pathway that feels like it might destroy us at times, only to rebuild us again and to fill us with more praise for him. The Psalms offer you a vocabulary for your journey in following Jesus, and it provides for us the soundtrack of our lives. A journey that not only heard the theme of the Psalms, which is the universal reign of the Lord and his King, but one that now chooses to follow in the footsteps of his King on the pathway that he has marked out for us, accepting the invitation to follow the King himself. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Let's pray. Father, just as you did with your people of old, you set before them a path to life and death. And now you call us to choose life. And so we choose life, Lord Jesus. We choose to follow you, which means a pathway through life that is one of lament and thanksgiving, but ultimately arriving in a destination of praise. Would you help us not to shortcut that road? Would you help us not to jump too quickly to being or thinking that we've somehow made it? But would you walk with us each and every step through the moments of lament, the moments of sadness and confusion and difficulty? Would you help us to follow you, Lord, through times of transition and uncertainty and all that's unclear? 
that we might begin to give you thanks for the picture that is emerging of us, of who you're making us to be, of who you're calling us to be like, that we might truly praise you. And just when we think that we're there, we get knocked down again and broken and bleeding only for you to rebuild us once more. Rebuild us, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we might be filled with praise for you. No matter where we are individually on the journey as we sit and listen to you this morning, speak to us through your word, or no matter where we are together as a church family, we pray, Lord Jesus, that all that we do would lead towards praise. Praise for you, our God and King, who redeems us, who heals us, who forgives our sins. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.